and welcome to another episode of Psychology in Mind. If it's hoots you here, then that's because we're outside in my garden. I am Gareth Stack and I'm joined by Andrew Allen. Doctor, Dr. Andrew Allen. Andrew Allen, PhD. Very good, very good. (laughs) And in today's episode, we're discussing the question, are people rational? In everyday life, we have to make many decisions. We can gather every piece of information we need relevant to the topic, or we can use a mental shortcut or heuristic. Now, since the 1970s, actually really since the 1950s, psychologists have studied not just how we think, but how our thinking fails, how the limits to human memory, processing speed, and our other cognitive capacities shape our problem solving and creativity. In today's episode of Psychology in Mind, we take a look at the problem solving shortcuts native to the human mind and examine how they both limit our ability to think rationally and enable us to think faster than we otherwise could. And our special guests are the owls that are apparently living in the trees. <laughs> really adding some <laughs> atmosphere here. Yeah, so I suppose we, could, we can kind of start by kind of talking about some of the. Um, uh, economic theories or classical economic theories that have kind of suggested that humans are kind of per- perfectly rational or I suppose they've basically done this in an attempt to kind of um, create a kind of a simpler theory or something that can be kind of deline- delineated in a relatively kind of uh, simple kind of theory if you like so um, there's kind of an, an assumption sometimes you hear reference to homo economicus this uh, perfectly <laughs> rational actor particularly in kind of microeconomics or the study of only uh, the jawbone has ever been found but <laughs> soon we will reconstruct the skeleton of homo economicus there is there does appear to be a missing link yeah, <laughs> yeah. between somewhere between uh, Ronald Reagan and <laughs> <laughs> Margaret Thatcher yeah it's hard to believe but it's true that economists really do in their models or historically at least have used these mo- they would have represented people as being perfectly rational mm. so when they say what will happen when x happens in the market or when housing prices change they assume that every person is acting in their rational self-interest sure which and i, I, I will kind of i think we'll touch on this again when we talk about some some of the, the work of gigarenser and heuristics but I, sometimes when making a, a, a model it's it's easier to kind of make some assumptions even if they don't uh, even if they're they're a bit of a stretch in terms of what's really happening uh, in terms of if you want to represent uh, you know a smaller number of variables and how broadly they should interact even if uh, it's not really borne out by uh, and that makes li- sense. lived experience. Yeah, like. and, and I can see how that would make sense at the at the macroeconomic level when you're dealing with whole economies. You're not going to mm. model each individual actor in their full personality scale and stuff. But mm. when you get to microeconomics and more clearly sociology and psychology, mm. um, pretty cl- pretty quickly the idea that people are rational becomes not only absurd but very harmful for trying to make predictions that are going to be useful or accurate. Mm. And yet, and yet, we have these economic theories of, of rationality. Mm. So, I mean, to give an, I suppose to give a concrete example, like a typical um, economic uh, idea would be that people should try to increase their, um, or say companies, for example, say a small company should try to increase its its marginal revenue. So, how much revenue it's getting in until um, it's the same as marginal cost. But, uh, or you could talk about that in terms of utility functions as well for for individuals who are trying to um, you know maximize their utility which is what the the rational actor is supposed to so just in layman speak what what yeah. how does what does maximize utility mean so I suppose this would be the idea of trying to get the most uh, value or the most use out of uh, say whatever say you're trying to buy a product or whatever like try to get the, the highest amount of utility which could be I suppose you could call it pleasure or whatever although that's probably oversimplifying but um, so say if a person has X amount of money they'll probably try and uh, spend it in such a way that they, that they can get the most uh, stuff for themselves out of a marketplace say but of course you know I mean this doesn't kind of time then if you see with people um, 
for example, kind of pro-social spending if people kind of give money to charity, etc. So another thing about homo economicus is it's often been uh, described as kind of a selfish sort of uh, individual actor, whereas, you know, again, that doesn't always kind of chime with people's kind of... And it's a bit of a just-so story too, because you can, of course, say, ah, well, they're getting this, they're maximising their utility by getting pleasure from giving to charity and maybe getting social worth from increasing their status through their charitable giving and, and on and on. You can describe anything in this way. Mm. But the real issue, I suppose, is when, it, when we get into people acting irrationally and in ways that mm. don't uh, benefit them. Yes. Despite knowing better or, or seeming that they should know better. Mm. And I suppose besides the um, besides what I was saying about we were saying about pro-social behavior, another is just the, the bottleneck of having there's just so much information out there. If you're buying a mortgage, for example, or thinking about different financial products, um, th- I suppose the, the broader issue is like, how do you actually kind of make decisions when you're presented with so many different choices? Um, and that would be the historically in um, economic uh, theories of rationality lack of perfect information would be the explanation for irrationality. It's not that people are unreasonable or mm. irrational. It's that they don't yeah. have access to all the information or they don't have the facility to sufficiently par- parse that level of informational mm. complexity. Indeed, yeah. So, so I have a quote here um, uh, which, which kind of defies that, that rational view of man from an economist, which is the type of rationality we assume in economics, perfect, logical, deductive rationality, is extremely useful in generating solutions to theoretical problems, but it demands much of human behaviour, much more in fact than it can usually deliver. Thankfully, thankfully we are not uh, entirely rational, because if we were, we'd be entirely mechanical. Uh, Our behaviour would be entirely predictable and entirely uninteresting. (laughs) Yeah. At this point, we might say quantum physics and kind of wave our hands. <laughs> yeah, it is all about the quantum diode, whatever that is. So as we said, the problem with economic theories of rationality is that they really don't have any connection with how people think. Humans display not only errors in their thinking, but systematic errors, things that, that between people are the same. Um, we have fallacies that we fall into, which have been kind of known about since the Greeks as rhetorical techniques to convince people. Um, ways of thinking that are typical but also typically wrong we repeat the same kinds of biases an obvious one would be prejudice Mm. racial sexual whatever other kinds of prejudice and we neglect the knowledge we already have so instead of kind of like a computer looking through the database of our knowledge and going these are the six pieces of information that are relevant i will do this thing We, we don't act like that at all we act based on a whole series of other prerogatives which can initially seem completely random but have been studied and uh, are now kind of understood to a better extent yeah so dan Ariely wrote uh, quite a quite a nice book very accessible book kind of on behavioral economics but it was called predictably irrational so it was coming back to this fact that if you know when people get things wrong it's not just in a chaotic kind of way because you know they they kind of just pick something at random because you know there's just too much information like there are kind of yeah yeah, and, and just to just to emphasise, I mean, this um, in within psychology, anyone who's studied psychology in the last fifteen years probably will have come across these kind of concepts of the study of um, irrationality, from as as Andrew just mentioned, behavioural economics to thinking, judgment, and decision making, which is an area more specifically in psychology. But a lot of economists, political scientists, people of that ilk, um, for those people, they still will oftentimes not learn about this stuff at all it's completely neglected even to doctoral level and i know this because a friend of mine recently um started a phd in um, computational neuroscience it's a plane going over (laughs) all part of the joys being outside and he started this degree and you know he had modules with uh, computer scientists and he had modules with economics lecturers and so on and so on and they were all 
staunchly for the most part rationalist they all mm. believed that as I said before failures in rationality were due to imperfect information or some other kind of like mechanical failure which is completely crazy mm. on the face of it but it's one of those things like we talked in a previous episode about behaviorism and how psychologists mm. denied the existence of consciousness consciousness at all never mind it's, it's despite the fact that we're all here being conscious <laughs> so you know disciplines can be um, ironically irrationally rational um, <laughs> which brings us to bounded rationality yeah so this is kind of going back to, to around the late 50s so Herbert Simon Herbert Simon who is somewhat of a polymath he was someone who was interested in a great number of disciplines from you know psychology to, to economics uh, to, to many other areas like uh, he was interested in the fundamental limits of what he referred to as working memory so there's a view here of human rationality as cognitively and ecologically constrained. So not only do you have bottlenecks in terms of how much uh, information we can hold in short-term memory and then the extent to which we can manipulate that kind of short-term memory, but also in terms of, of our environment as well. So I think Herbert Simon used this kind of metaphor of, of uh, the scissors where, you know, our kind of our, the, the cognitive abilities we have in our brains uh, is one blade of the scissors, but we have to also think about, you know, what kind of what the the environmental situation is is like as well. So and, I mean, and this you, is a real, yeah. this is super super fundamental. I think to all psychology and the the evolutionary approach to psychology now is that basically the world is helping you think because mm. you evolved to all of the things that exist in the world from gravity to the way in which math works. So all of this stuff, that's the environment and that's the context in which your behavior makes sense. Not only just sort of like we we um we eat too many sweets because we evolved to eat sugary plants not not just stuff stuff like that but also the idea that we're rational at all is deeply spurious because we're only rational in the context in which we evolved to be rational we're only designed to solve the kinds of problems that the world can help us solve by continually making sense in the same way mm. and in terms of the environment like just at a kind of concrete level if you kind of think of you know the amount of information people can be bombarded with today like kind of in an online system if they're kind of if you're looking at various things on your smartphone like comparing different uh, different holidays or whatever like if you compare that to how many people and many did live and many people still live uh, it's uh, I suppose it kind of shows how, how the level of information your your environment bombards you with it can be kind of wildly different depending on you know what place and time you you live in or have lived in yeah, and if you take a computational metaphor, as, as Herbert Simon did, they were, were overwhelmed with inputs. You know, mm. one, one thing I always think about is um, is actually in relation to attractiveness. You know, let's say you grew up with the, the you know, probably listeners are familiar with the idea of the Dunbar number, the, the standard human community that we've evolved to understand. Is, I think it varies between 150 and 200 people, something like that. That there's the maximum amount of people that you can have relationships with that and remember who they are and coherently continue on. And and yet when we turn on TV, you know, on an average day, you might have a kind of one one directional relationship with a fictional person uh, with hundreds of people. And that goes on day after day, advertising posters, encounters in cities and so on. So we're kind of this overwhelming glut, glut of information and where that attra- that affects attractiveness, say, is previously where you you're the bar for what you would understand as attractive was 
the 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 most healthy person in your village now it's like the best looking person who's ever lived it's a hollywood uh superstar who's <laughs> been effect- effectively selected as as incredibly physically perfect then perfected with not only with makeup but with cgi and and then shown you in glorious high definition in a, in a magnificent heroic circumstance so it has this distorting i think it really has a pragmatically distorting effect on what we attend to in terms of attractiveness and how we perceive other people hmm. we all we, we all compare ourselves you know physically not just with our friends or whatever or people mm-hmm. our, our compatriots but with um chris evans as 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 captain america you know or, or scarlett johansson as whichever avenger she is i don't remember <laughs> <laughs> but that you know i think it's, it's it's problematic and it probably contributes to mm. things like eating disorders and so on yeah just on attractiveness actually that comes back to one of the heuristic we'll probably talk a bit more later about the anchoring heuristic with this idea that you know if you're presented with a particular um if you're presented with a particular stimulus first and then you have to choose between that and say a bunch of other stimuli like you, you know you tend to be or you tend to be kind of your decision is very much influenced by what uh, the first thing you saw was so it connect as you know like an anchor but um but so if Dan- you if you heard your next your next door neighbor won a million euro in the lottery and then the next very next week you win 500 euro rather than going i have 500 euro you're gonna go oh that is like what is that less than a half a thousandth of what he won <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, uh, but like just with attractiveness as well like dan Ariely again the predictably irrational guy was kind of it's, it's talking about how um you know with attractiveness if you if you're in a room with a, you know with a bunch of people who are kind of re- generally have a reasonable level of attractiveness it can be kind of hard to choose among them because it's hard to kind of think what the standard is but if you meet um two people who look quite similar uh the the more attractive if there's one of them that is slightly more attractive you'd be more drawn to them than a third person who is who was about as attractive as that as those two people anyway mm-hmm. So because there's a comparison there, you could say, oh, that person's more attractive than uh, that person's more attractive than the person who looks kind of like them. So that means they're more attractive than, <laughs> than something. So. And the, the reason to bring that up is, I mean, outside of there's a lot of things that are accepted and understood in psychology that might be controversial sort of in the media. And one of those things is that 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 many of the ways in which we treat people are related to objective measures of attractiveness. So if someone is ob- considered in general and uh, attractive that's a measure that will be sustainably produced in other words lots of other people will produce the same kind of response in a test with a picture or whatever and it will evoke a, a similar response they'll get more job offers they'll be treated better in public and so on it's irrespective of gender and it's been reproduced many times so th- measures like this are again the, the very idea that there would be an objective thing called attractiveness could be contentious but it's not at all it, it's completely demonstrated experimentally and it, it, it has it has real repercussions for employability and so on and so on of course you will I mean you will see individual very very some individual variation in terms right. of people's ratings of, of yeah. a given person's attractiveness. This is kind of like a median thing. So, mm-hmm. of course, it's it's like it takes all sorts. <laughs> Beauty is in the eye of the beholder specifically, but in general it isn't. It's, it's when it yeah. becomes to, to... So factors like symmetry, say, for example, having mm-hmm. a symmetrical face or certain signs associated with being in the prime of your prime of your youth. There, 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 there's, there's a lot of different approaches that developed out of... I, I would think Her- Herbert Simon's work was sort of um, foundational in this. As Andrew mentioned, the, uh, the idea that we've, ad- we've adapted, that our, our rationality is adapted to the, to the world in which we live and that there are limits to rationality. And in Simon's case, uh, he specifically studied working memory, as we mentioned, and he discovered that, broadly speaking, we can only kind of have in our working memory, in the, in the memory we're using on a moment-to-moment basis, what he called seven plus or minus two, the magic number. So... Um, 
between five and nine things mm. and then it gets more complex because you get into well of course people are thinking more more things than that but they chunk them together so you can remember maybe seven um or or nine or five numbers and each number represents a chunk and there are ways of exploiting that to remember more or less but that approach then has gone on to lead to a whole bunch of ways of thinking about judgment and decision making and mm. the limits of our our, th- our thinking andrew do you want to talk a little bit about the uh, kahneman tversky's program and what, what's that what that has achieved yeah so these are two real uh, giants of like behavioral economics so yeah daniel kahneman and amos tversky so yeah they i mean they they won the nobel prize in economics despite the fact they were kind of rooted in the discipline of psychology but they did a lot of work about kind of identifying a number of these um heuristics or these mental shortcuts that that um have been demonstrated kind of across uh numerous uh studies and i think we might have alluded to like the replicability crisis Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. there recently where this idea that a lot of psychological findings were hard to show again if you ran the same experiment you might not find the same results but i think some of their stuff has actually held up pretty pretty well like a lot of their work in uh, heuristics but again it, it as you say i mean a lot of it was um herbert simon's work would have kind of acted as sort of a, a godfather for a lot of their stuff in terms of these idea of bounded rationality and people work with kind of imperfect information so I suppose Kahneman is pretty well known for for um, he had a book kind of a similar similarly kind of access, accessible uh, book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if you're reading predictably irrational, you should read Thinking Fast and Slow as well, <laughs> which is kind of talking about these two kind of types of thinking. Now, when I say two types, it's probably more like a, a continuum from uh, from one end of the scale to the other. But um, basically, you have kind of type type one thinking which is quite fast kind of automatic kind of thinking so stuff that, that happens quite quickly decisions that are made over kind of split second and un- un- largely unconsciously as well things you're not necessarily yeah. aware of re- reactive decisions mm. L- yeah. like a like a when you see a, a person and you have an immediate response to them mm. something like that it's, it's like when you know we first laid eyes on each other across the just <laughs> that, in, that intense intellectual <laughs> meeting of minds absolutely uh. yeah yeah <laughs> we didn't even have to think about it ironically <laughs> but uh so yeah there's the kind of type one thinking and, the, and then type two thinking which is more kind of slow or effortful um uh, which so say for example if you're trying to engage in kind of logical reasoning so if you're trying to do kind of syllogisms or kind of uh, difficult you know mathematical problems you know you might uh, you'd be more likely to be engaged in this kind of type two thinking mm-hmm. so and, and type two is sort of slower and more effortful would be the, the major kind of difference exactly and it would be constrained by factors such as working memory like you were saying so um, another good example of, of of uh, that can demonstrate the uh, the kind of the limits of our working memory would be the n back test test so this is used a lot in experimental psychology to test people's um people's ability to kind of manipulate information mm-hmm. in short-term memory so what that involves is uh, there's i think there's various ways of doing it but you basically see a number of stimuli and you have to basically name the stimulus that you saw two goes back so say if you see i don't know and it would it, be harder than this but if you see an a and a B, you just have to watch. And then when you see C, you have to say A. When you see the D, oh. you have to say B. When you say you see the E, you have Sounds to say like C. Sounds like a drinking game. Yeah, so it's... <laughs> exactly, yeah. So And drinking games often, you know, kind of... <laughs> Invo- involves troop tests. Exactly, yeah. But, uh, yeah, when you're... I mean, but you know, we all know, like, when you're... If you're under the influence of alcohol, like, your your ability to do these kind of tests gradually begins... <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> begins to degrade like so <laughs> uh, so and th- that's yeah. that kind of connects to something else that we might mention later which is that um, many of the uh, uh, so so in Kahneman Tversky's model 
um, system two or type two thinking, this logical rational thinking helps to control system one. But things like um, being tired, being hungry, being exhausted, being under the influence of a substance, um, things like what, what psychologists call visceral factors, things that affect the body and in turn affect the mind, these all reduce our ability to regulate um, the automatic thinking that we're doing. So we have all of these. Uh, more conscious deliberative processes that get pulled back and reduced depending on how affected we are so uh, you know we're all familiar with getting uh, very overly tired and maybe getting into an argument whereas um, when we're when we're feeling better we would acknowledge that somebody was annoying us and just sort of move out of the situation or diffuse it maybe that's not something we find so easy to do and similarly we might make poorer decisions because we're resorting to this type um, one thinking where we're hopping in the the, the the most quick heuristic rather than saying well hang on let's take a step back and mm. and re- is this the most reasonable way and then applying a more rigorous approach yeah and um, I mean uh, I suppose we'll be talking about this more through, through throughout this this podcast, but uh, I suppose there are probably various reasons why these heuristics are, have, are so kind of uh, visible uh, across. Uh, like most most people will display most of these heuristics, like and you know there is a reason that they are kind of the fact that they do work a lot of the time mm-hmm. is why they you know most people display them. Like so, it's the problem is sometimes they do break down though, um, and a lot of Kahneman and Tversky's work was kind of set up in such a way as to kind of tests the difference between the two so a lot of the time you know the two types of thinking will will chime with each other they'll be in harmony but um Kahneman and Tversky kind of set up a number of studies that were carefully designed to kind of where their one would come into conflict with the other and uh, and uh, they they had you touched on this they had this idea that human beings were cognitive misers that yeah. effectively in any given situation were trying to make the least amount of effort to come to a decision Mm. um, while still being as effective as possible. So Mm. rather than um, going through the most rigorous approach, we will always choose the fastest approach that in the moment we consider reasonable. And this is actually something that we see um, in patients who have certain kinds of brain injury um, where affect has been, this is kind of off topic, but it it goes into the wider area of decision making, not something we'll talk about today, but the role of emotion in decision making. Mm. And uh, patients who've had their emotions damaged often instead of uh, relying on an emotional heuristic where uh, emotion connects with um, a memory or an idea and triggers a heuristic, they'll very logically determine an answer. And this can lead to them standing in a supermarket for 30, 40 minutes, staring at two pieces of two packets of cornflakes, trying to decide between them, <laughs> rationally trying to play out. Because which one is better? <laughs> which one is better? Because that's one of the issues with, with uh, absolute rationality is this scaling of priorities. So Obviously, that's an absurd decision, which is of no relevance. But the 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 idea that that you can rank a decision moment to moment based on how important it is is deeply related to emotion, mm. not so much to rationality and to higher priorities, which are linked to emotions, your drives, and so on. Mm. As possibly the case, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how much evidence there is for this that people are increasingly having to to increasingly become cognitive misers with the great the greater the amount of mm. information they're kind of exposed to over time that they may have to be more selective in the amount of information they process or they you know in term before making decisions about anything <laughs> yeah and there's been some work done on the the uh, the tyranny of choice the overabundance of choice i know there's a, a couple of books out from behavioral economists on that idea that mm. that it's actually stressful to be faced with 43 kinds of um cornflakes cornflakes <laughs> or tomato sauce or whatever it's it's a, i find that intuitively interesting because i don't i don't find that problematic personally 
um, just on a you know this is not representative of anything but when I go to a supermarket and there's 43 kinds I think great that one looks fun I'll take that one yeah. but uh, but it, it can be it can actually be emotionally um, troubling for people to, to face too much choice and I suppose it comes into play really when it's bigger choices we all have that difficulty do you choose uh, of these two people that you're interested in which person do you pursue as a partner or of these two places you could live or these two jobs or these 10 jobs maybe yeah. it's easy when it's two choices but if the choice is which university to go to and you've been accepted to 10 it could be a much more difficult decision than if it's just two yeah and I think that's that comes into into there's a thing about kind of anticipated regret as well that people kind of think you know oh this university is quite good but mm. you know what if it, it turns out that you know the other university would have would have been better like you know yeah. and you know and again if you kind of come back to homo economicus would probably be less likely to kind of <laughs> would be less likely to get too hung up on that because they'd kind of they'd probably think you know well i mean i only have this um, i only have this amount of information now so i have to, homo economicus would say you know i have to make the decision based on what i know now and even if i could have done better at university b instead of university a you know it it wouldn't matter to me because you know i could only have made my decision based on what i know now mm-hmm. you know but of course people don't most people don't really kind of <laughs> think that well, way. So. And, and, and it come, that actually po- is very cogently pointing out another flaw in that idea that people are perfectly rational, which is that, okay, we perfectly rationally pursue our goals and desires, but what are our goals and desires? They vary from person to person and they are, in a sense, perfectly irrational. They mm. can be understood in the greater context of evolution and so on, but what you want out of university might be to go to a party school, have a good time, have the experience your parents told you about where they went wild and experimented and whatever. Or you might have a very determined uh, view of your career and very want to meet the right people, gain the right qualifications, uh, make yourself more employable. And those two things are radically different. And this idea of satisfying those desires you need to have desires in the first place to satisfy. If you don't have any <laughs> desires, Homo economicus, who was indeed perfectly rational, would have no desires and would just sit there. And again, that, that <laughs> comes back to these patients with kind of uh, prefrontal cortical problems where they, they have disconnect with their emotions and they just have this lack of affect, lack of a desire. Mm. And if you have a lack of a desire, you can't make a decision because decisions are there to satisfy a desire, mm. even if it's a desire to change your, your discomfortable situation to a more comfortable one. <laughs> Homo economicus just wants more money. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's the the pure and perfect desire. <laughs> yes, forget partners, obtain money. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, as the great rapper uh, <laughs> Economicus Max uh, once once said. Maximus. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so as we mentioned, these the two systems um, can compete at times, and hmm. system two tends to fail under under pressure but we should yeah at one point i was i was just gonna i just gonna plug some a very small bit of research oh yes a small survey but it, it is interesting that there are individual differences in people's um people's tendency to engage in type 2 thinking or um i suppose it's debatable how much people dif- differ in using type 1 thinking the kind of fast kind of effortless thinking but um people do differ in the extent to which they have faith in their type one thinking or their intuitive thinking so this and there's some there's some nice kind of very quick uh, surveys that kind of test the extent to which people have faith in their type one fast thinking and also the extent to which their um they like to to kind of think about more kind of tricky kind of slow effortful thinking the type two and um so what's inter- I suppose you know as you're saying like you can have these paradigms or situ- situate real situations where they come into conflict but um they aren't necessarily if you have more of one it doesn't necessarily mean that you have less of the other so you can have some people who do place a lot of faith in their intuitive kind of pre-conscious thinking but who also really like to engage in that kind of slow effortful kind of logical thinking 
Um, so but I, I do, feel like yeah. they're both intuitive and intellectual. Yeah, so, yeah, well, at least in terms of what they report, in terms of what, what kind of types of thinking they rely on or they like to use, yeah. So, and I did find, an, a, we did kind of a smallish survey where we did find there was, a, um, we were looking at creative achievement, so the extent to which people will have done things like, you know, have written uh, a story or have, uh, say, come up with new recipes or doing comedy kind of stuff or whatever. But um, we we found there wasn't actually much of a relationship between creative achievement and people's kind of faith and intuition Mm -hmm. so you might think that you know a lot of creative people are quite intuitive or they have this reliance on pre-conscious thinking but we didn't really find much of a relation between them but there was some some evidence now that um the people with the highest level of creative achievement uh tended to have uh tended to use a lot of type 2 thinking or they reported that they liked to kind of work on kind of difficult problems etc mm. which kind of makes sense really that it would kind of give people the kind of um uh the it would they'd be the kind of people who'd stick at something like a creative project to kind of bring it to, to fruition or what have you yeah so, i often think of creativity or, or or sort of creative tasks in using Lev Vygotsky the the Russian psychologist's idea of scaffolding so mm. he applied it to learning where when you're trying to learn something the the best form of learning is when somebody provides you with a scaffold where they they understand where you're at and they build a scaffold of knowledge around you and offer yeah. what will help you at that moment not sort of the whole picture because that's just confusing and overwhelming and a, a creativity is kind of similar because sure the initial burst to create something is emotional and intuitive but in order to actually complete a project you have to scaffold by building skills even just attention you know mm. uh, or if it's music you know Andrew is a very accomplished musician you have to learn the instruments and you know your passion will take you so far it will take you to noodling but you have to pursue it beyond passion to in order in order to actually make a coherent band play with people when you know practice when you're not in the mood um, and, and so on it, not to make it joyless but to actually get to the level where you're really achieving something you really have to have that commitment to constructing things so I can definitely see how it would be a, a more um, cognitive and less intuitive task mm or a task set of tasks whatever and <laughs> um, so can you tell me about some of the um the heuristics some of the problem solving tricks that that Kahneman and Tversky identified yeah so um there's there's a number of them like so there's a bunch of you know favorite heuristics so there's there's been um there's been a very large number of heuristics kind of identified over the years but um so some of the really kind of big ones identified by Kahneman and Tversky were availability and representativeness so um, availability uh, is it kind of does what it says on the tin like we're, we're more likely to put more weight or um, to think more readily about um, ideas or um, facts that are that come come into our kind of conscious mind uh, more quickly so a good example is when you're when you're buying insurance you might uh, someone might be more inclined to um, to buy insurance for a say a fire or something dramatic because they can picture how that could be damaging mm-hmm. to their lives or it's something they've seen on TV a lot uh, whereas they might not buy it for floods, for example, which is probably in many places, you know, I lived in Cork for a while, is, is, is a much more likely mm-hmm. uh, occurrence mm-hmm. and it might be better value insurance. But it's just because uh, one thing kind of comes to mind more easily, you kind of attach more weight to it. And advertising takes advantage of this availability heuristic all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of ads are not designed to make you buy the product. They're designed so that the product is in your awareness so that when you come to the 
point of sale you're more likely to choose it mm. from a selection of alternatives. Yeah. So, for example, we all know about Coca-Cola. Why do Coca-Cola keep advertising? Well, it's not so as to convince you that Coca-Cola is better than other things, at least not exclusively. Part of the reason they're advertising is when you're then faced with a choice of drinks, Coca-Cola will be the one you'll veer towards because you've more recently heard about it or heard about it more often. It's mm. more available in your semantic network. Yeah, and this this overlaps with some of the stuff that... Um uh, Gert Gigerenzer has done like he, he uses um, he, he mentions it's a similar kind of um, heuristic uh, called the recognition heuristic where you're more likely if you if you are trying to think if a bunch of different options are you're trying to pick one out which is higher on a particular attribute say a positive attribute you're more likely to pick the one you recognize so so um, speaking of these heuristics um, what is the Linda problem and okay so actually we should should say sorry about that we skipped forward a little bit in time due to a helicopter <laughs> we dealt with the helicopter issue they've they've been they've apologized and flown away so yep. what is the linda problem okay so yeah the linda problem is where people are presented with this kind of character sketch of someone called uh, linda and so they're they're told for example that linda uh, you know identifies as kind of a lefty liberal sort of person she goes to a kind of arts college uh, all this kind of stuff so people are building up this kind of stereotypical mm-hmm. vision of what this person linda is like in their mind and then they're offered a bunch of different statements about Linda and asked to select which one is more likely. So the options could be uh, Linda is a feminist, uh, Linda is a bank teller, and Linda is a feminist and a bank teller. Mm-hmm. And so when people did this, um, they were more likely to select, uh, or they said that uh, the fact that uh, Linda is both uh, a feminist and a bank teller is more likely than Linda just being a bank teller because when they've read the character sketch they think you know well you know the, the feminist is more representative but if you were to kind of engage in this kind of logical kind of slow type 2 thinking if you, when you you would kind of realise that actually hang on it's not logically possible that it could be more likely that she's both uh, a bank teller and a feminist than compared to like just being yeah if there's a even teller, a slight yeah. possibility she isn't a bank teller or she isn't a feminist both things together can't be more likely yeah so it's called the, it's called the conjunction fallacy basically so i suppose that the whole work on heuristics has kind of ties in quite closely with the whole area of logical fallacies mm-hmm. so there's a number of kind of so i mean there's a number of logical fallacies whereby you know were you to imp- employ careful type 2 thinking you realise you're kind of making a mistake so you know probably a lot of people if, if you're interested in argumentation you, or if you argue with people on the inter- pretentious, <laughs> pretentious people like me on the internet a lot you probably uh, have heard of a number of these like the ad hominem mm-hmm. fallacy for example so instead of arguing about what the person's saying you try to argue about some characteristic of, of their personality um, and I, I think so, actually it, yeah. it's you know the the idea of pointing out fallacies in an argument might might be cliche and seen as uh, pedantic and so on, and, and you know rightly so it can detract from the content of an argument. That said, you know I, I studied um, you know classical rhetoric when I when I was a kid, um, and I think an understanding like a basic understanding of the the main fallacies and of the nature of a fallacy, which is they all they all kind of come down to the same thing, which is taking some taking an argument or several arguments someone is making and misaligning the arguments to in order to imply that they mean something else, or mm-hmm. that the source of the argument in this case that the ad hominem fallacy affects the quality of the argument. An, an acknowledgement of that and an understanding of those kinds of things makes you much better able to evaluate similar to being literate in the media to understanding the ways in which the media um, portrays and distorts factual information These, th- this kind of understanding is incredibly powerful for understanding what's being told to you mm. parsing um, how you're being treated in general in society and really understanding how people um, 
manipulate arguments and communicate mm. in ways that are, are dishonest and it's, I think everyone should be learning this kind of stuff not in some pretentious so we can all have great uh, argument kind of way but in a more specific this will help you understand how you're being manipulated kind of way mm. yeah so the the Linda problem kind of is is a case of this uh, this representativeness uh, uh, heuristic so because uh, you know Linda if when you hear about these attributes of Linda and the characters character sketch it's kind of representative of what a feminist would be like so you kind of think okay it's more likely that even though you don't know whether she is a, fam- a feminist and or a bank teller you kind of just draw on that kind of information to kind of say okay it's more likely that she's uh, a feminist even even to the extent where it could be kind of uh, you could be making this this kind of fallacy like and, and i suppose that it's another indication of how this how a specific heuristic which which might make sense to use um, on a frequent basis will be wrong in an individual case I suppose that all prejudices like that so for example in our evolved context in, in the environment in which we evolved a certain kind of person a person from a certain place might have been more likely to attack you or a person of a certain larger physical size whatever it was so it might it might make sense to be overly cautious in understanding or attributing extra extra pieces of information to to a, to a judgment if it if it saved your life or if it protected you in some way whereas in the modern context it might lead you to make prejudicial decisions about mm. Linda making assumptions that aren't necessarily true about her yeah and I guess that perhaps the ad hominem fallacy again this idea of playing the playing the person rather than the argument could be seen as kind of a it, it could for example be partly due to the representative this representative heuristic in terms of you know if someone if you didn't like someone you know or if someone was kind of your enemy they would be more likely to lie to you so you know why should you kind of believe their argument or why should you listen to what they're saying yeah yeah. even though you know they could be making a valid argument um, whether think, or not to believe the evidence that's in it or the I think we, we see this all the time in the, in the modern discourse in fact the, there's a there's a tendency to mock the idea of argument and the idea of rationality which is profoundly dangerous because the alternative is irrationality and no allowance for argument on a related note yeah we have confirmation bias which is probably a heuristic where <laughs> we're all all familiar with whereby we were more likely to uh, seek out information that kind of confirms what what our our existing beliefs are already. I mean, this can come out. I mean, th- there's a number of different kind of uh, aspects of information processing that that kind of fall under the umbrella of this this confirmation bias. So we tend to seek out information that confirms our existing beliefs or prejudices. But then, even when we find information, or say if we're exposed to 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 arguments, so say with you know a debate about a ref- the referendum or whatever, you tend to attach greater weight to evidence that supports what you believe already, even once you have the information. And then, even if you have a given piece of evidence that's somewhat ambiguous, you tend to interpret it as being more consistent with your your existing uh, beliefs. And which, which again, it t- that ties into the idea of cognitive dissonance, which mm. is something that comes up a lot in psychology. It is painful, um, or, or at least um, induces suffering of some kind, discomfort, at least. discomfort of some <laughs> of some kind, um, to hold two perspectives in mind which contradict, to try to retain two pieces of information which, um, especially which are related to core value systems, mm. which are which are co- contradictory. Um, for Especially exa- if you're not a politician. As well. <laughs> <laughs> well, a good, good example is where, where someone that you care about has done something bad, mm. and it is it is it is actually um, it is actually uncomfortable to acknowledge both that you care about this person and that they are that they have done something bad. Yep. So it can can lead you to either disregard the person or disregard the thing that you know to be true about them. And we've all seen those things happen in our personal lives. Um, and but but again, this is one of those things where. Um, 
it is necessary so that this this is a fallacial way of thinking but in order to avoid the the um the disabling cognitive dissonance of trying to continually juggle two things mm-hmm. we sort of have to settle on one and there's that great bernard shaw line about the the um the sign of a great mind being uh, the ability to hold two contradictory things in mind at once and still function but it is it is a difficult thing to do so so stuff like um heuristics like confirmation bias allow us to to narrow down the amount of things that we have to hold which are in contra- contradiction to one another so like it's kind of like a chess game where you're trying to imagine multiple move sets ahead that's a that's a that's extremely effortful to do mm. so rather than doing that we try to hone in on one your core beliefs uh, and 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 pick things up which enhance those and unfortunately it does mean that people are unreasonable mm. uh, even when they see their beliefs contradicted and disproven they will still hold them but it mm. does mean that we can function when we wouldn't otherwise wouldn't be because we'd be overwhelmed by different kinds of perspectives and be much more amenable to being manipulated as a result mm. so there's there's a utility to all of these things even where they are irrational yeah and it's interesting that um even when even kind of thinking about kind of more dry logical kind of problems where there isn't kind of as much investment like you said like that's a great example where you know someone you really care about does something bad but like where people are trying uh, there's evi- evidence there was a study being done at Trinity actually around the time I was, I was an undergrad as there where, where they were kind of looking at and um, when people try to to find evidence to kind of show how strong a theory is they tend to keep seeking out information that kind of backs up the theory and they never kind of test the theory by they don't engage in this kind of this idea from Karl Popper that you should also try to disprove the theory which is supposedly the whole scientific method now you know that, that, <laughs> that is what you're supposed to do but it's not what scientists do at all I suppose a concrete example would be where, where someone is kind of claiming that something is always the case so these type of people will always act this way you know when they draw that kind of level of general uh, that they draw that kind of generalization it would only take uh, them finding a single case where that type of person didn't act that way mm-hmm. to kind of dis- disprove that but because of this kind of confirmation bias they're only seeking out information that confirms the prejudice prejudice that they already had and this <laughs> is the, the sort of the whole basis of the modern media landscape you know i went to a um i went to a weekend that google held in dublin quite recently about how to sort of tie your newsroom i don't know why i was invited i don't know why nothing to do with what i do but how to tie your newsroom into google services so you can get you know more data and get more hits and so on and their whole strategy was know what is going on in the news right now and produce things that are about that and like a very cursory examination of that will will point out how problematic it is like if, if something is being promulgated in the news media which is damaging or dangerous or untrue yeah um or even were they sorry were they just saying try to kind of piggyback on what try to piggyback on what's popular basically so the classic example would be suicide so a famous suicide or a spree killer say um effect like we we know that news reporting of spree killers or of suicide increased the likelihood of suicides and spree killers respectively when you read more about these things more people will do them Full stop, end of, simple as that. It's been known since Emil Durkheim in the 19th century. And yet, this kind of relentless pursuit of hits um, and this relentless um, winnowing of perspectives so that, you know, the CNN viewer sees the CNN worldview, the InfoWars viewer sees the InfoWars view, has meant that we are more and more likely to be confronted with highly evocative, highly... um, sometimes pernicious even from good news organizations you know will report sandy cook killer did this that and the other these were the reasons why the the motive is informing you and yet just by hearing that you're more likely on not you know not an individual person but it is more likely that someone someone hearing that will go on and do the same thing it's interesting what you said about um people being winnowing winnowed into or 
or people going into to view their particular mm-hmm. TV channel or whatever their particular source of information. So I suppose that this whole thing about the you know the echo chamber effect that we all know about, where people kind of are listening to, you know, people who agree with them about you know Donald Trump or the the next referendum or what have you. Um, but it comes back to the, I suppose it comes back to this idea of the uh, of confirmation bias that you know you don't you want to kind of seek out people who agree with you. So. Mm-hmm. You know, and we are of course a proud member of the uh, PrisonPlanet.com, Infowars.com network. You can enjoy our protein powders and nootropics. Absolutely, <laughs> it's. Um, but uh, yeah, so I suppose, and because, like, I mean, with the whole online environment, you you can kind of narrow things down more and more, and you can kind of find someone, find a group that have your very specific sort of uh, your viewpoints. So say you're you're not just finding fellow incels, but a very specific <laughs> kind of subtype. Of, I knew you'd bring up incels. A very a very specific. Uh, branch of, of incels that you know just go just far enough but not too far <laughs> in terms of <laughs> people have been specifically dumped by Stacy <laughs> yes the original Stacy <laughs> in his later life Herbert Simon specifically rejected both the the idea of the utility maximizer coming from economics and Kahneman and Tversky's ideas about mo- cognitive miserhood that we were trying to sort of use the least amount of energy in solving problems Instead, as Andrew uh, mentioned, he thought about more about the ecological validity of reasoning, why forms of logic or forms of problem solving heuristics evolved, what they would have done initially in the environment in which they evolved and how they're actually useful in the context in which they continue to be used. And uh, so that brings us to Geiger, Enzer and Todd, who have a, a, an evolutionary perspective on problem um, problem solving and how we use these. So how, how, how overall, um, how do they differ from from Kahneman and Tversky in their in their approach? Um, I, I, I suppose at the risk of oversimplifying, like, I mean, Kahneman and Tversky did have quite, um, I suppose, painted a, a, reg, a relatively negative picture of the the our, our abilities to kind of reason their humans humans ability to uh, make rational decisions and as i was saying earlier like i mean if you think of something like the linda problem it's it's very carefully designed to uh, to kind of create this tension between type one thinking and type two thinking and actually stephen jay gould i think it was 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 kind of talking about how talked about it almost as a cognitive illusion rather than a perceptual illusion because even when you understand why why it's a conjunction fallacy he says he can still hear a little voice in his he can still hear a little voice in his mind saying you know but just read the description she has to be a feminist <laughs> i was know? just i was just thinking about that it's kind of an optical illusion but for the yeah. but for but for our view of the world rather than uh, yeah, yeah. see. and optical illusions do point out flaws in our perception but they're not things that typically inhibit us and, and they're things we don't typically see in our environment as right. well so i suppose uh so this was the thing with Kahneman and Tversky. Like, I mean, they had kind of carefully set up uh, situations or experiments that created this tension between type one and type two thinking. Whereas, I suppose uh, Gigrenser's uh, idea was kind of coming to this kind of ecological rationality. That, that you, again, it kind of goes back a bit to what what you were saying about Herbert Simon, whereby uh, we have certain heuristics that are evolved to kind of maximize uh, to to kind of get the best to, to make the best decision we can under with kind of constrained information. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, without necessarily going as far as, as saying that's optimization under constraints, it's kind of, I suppose, yeah, th- trying to throw out this idea that you're going to optimize, have an optimal amount of information or make the best mm-hmm. possible decision that compared to what you would make if you had infinite time and infinite, yeah. A good way of thinking about it, I suppose, is is using computational metaphor. So 
um, heuristics are like algorithms. If if anyone's a programmer, you, they're designed to to solve a problem quickly, and an algorithm can solve the same problem much more quickly if it uses a more efficient approach. But at the risk sometimes of, in special cases, failing. So by by um, rather than having a perfect answer, using an algorithm that will provide a fuzzy answer very quickly can be a quick using in this paradigm of fuzzy logic, um, or or as as now in machine learning. You know, um, machine learning approaches tend not to find a perfect answer. They tend to find, um, they tend to find a, a realm of answers, a domain, a set of of these are this is the kind of behavior you want to do, and this is a weight put on this behavior, and eventually there'll be a decision made. But rather than logic proves that this is the correct answer, but this is a very long way of doing it. We, we, these are quicker methods, which sort of revolve around. Um, making a general decision that is sort of in the realm of the right answer and hopefully very close to the right answer but not the perfect answer so that's mm. another way of thinking about these problem solving approaches that yes they're not going to give you the perfect answer but in effect they might be more useful than the perfect answer because you're arriving at them when you need them not 15 minutes later when mm. the line has already eaten you or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah and it goes back to yeah what you were saying about um yeah that they've they've kind of evolved under to be our means of thinking have evolved to kind of be employed under certain situations so the visceral factors thing that you mentioned like if you're if you're kind of under extreme pressure to do something thing like say if someone's threatening you your your attention is going to be very focused on mm-hmm. on um on that person who's, who's threatening you so your information processing is necessarily going to be narrowed down to a very kind of small window like but it, which makes sense <laughs> it, it does make sense and uh, again it's part of the problem with living in the modern world is that not only are we confronted with a glut of information we're con- confronted with a glut of urgency so every advertisement is an inducement to, to act in a certain way every government warning is an inducement not to act in a certain way um, so we're kind of hyper stimulated into an urgency and hence we sort of have to develop and implement these methods of calming down all the time like meditation or breathing or um, you know um, um, mindfulness Uh, but that's you know we wouldn't have had to do that if we were running across the Serengeti relatively untroubled by other things than the immediate set of problems we face Mm. theoretically at least So, uh, so, so, uh, as we said, um, Guy Grenzer and Todd, rather than saying, "Oh, these heuristics prove that humans are irrational," mm-hmm. they they said, "Well, these are actually domain-specific psychological mechanisms. So they evolved. They're distinct. They're in the brain. They're they're there to solve a problem." Which is still a controversial idea that there's mm-hmm. that 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 kind of complexity of reasoning is um, is genetic or innate. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they were able to prove using computational models that at least in certain situations the kinds of heuristics that they, they observed in people were more effective than than complete rationality yeah I suppose the point they were making is that when you say if you have a very large amount of information available to you say you have you're, you're looking at a business how a business performed over several months and you start to model you know all the information available to you you can start to create a model that includes a lot of noise as well as signal or a lot of stuff that isn't going to be predictive of how the business is going to do six months later compared to how it did six months before whereas if you have some of these simple decision making things obviously they have their flaws as well but um, you know they can still be quite predictive nonetheless well, that kind of brings me to the, the classic thing of the um, why do nerds do so well um, well it's because they're do nerds they? <laughs> well I'm thinking of the Bill Gates of this world you know the, the sort of the, the person who's going to get um, wedgied in school uh, yeah. the very same things that will make that person the target of abuse in childhood so the um, intense fixation on subject areas more specifically solving problems in a rational and linear and almost inhuman way 
will be very effective at a meta scale. So it's much more effective to be um, a, a type two thinker if you're running a business or you're writing a computer program. But it's probably much less effective if you're, you know, trying to become popular in a social group or trying to even fit in amongst amongst ordinary humans who are more fast and frugal in their, their thinking. <laughs> A fast and frugal mating strategy. <laughs> fast and frugal six coming to a theatre near you. Um, Faster and frugaler. <laughs> so, can you tell me about some of the potentials for exploitation of, of heuristics. Yeah, so I, I mentioned um, Dan Ariely. So, he kind of says that, you know, we're predictably irrational. So, you know, the fact that most people display these heuristics, you know, they're not making mistakes in a chaotic way because they have too much info. They're kind of making the same mistakes over time. So, this means that, you know, uh, canny businesses that are aware of these kind of heuristics can kind of use them to kind of basically turn people into to money pumps, uh, if you like. So, for example, you know, if you think people are kind of quite, can be quite risk averse, but, um, their propensity, their, their tendency to be risk uh, risk averse depends on whether something's presented in terms of gains or losses as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. So say an insurance company, for example, can kind of uh, exploit people's aversion towards risk in order to kind of gain money from people and the way in which they fra- the way in which companies companies in general kind of frame things so the way they they kind of describe a set of options to people can kind of uh, take advantage of these kind of heuristics by um so if you think because something's co- it's kind of ambiguous about whether it's kind of a a gain or, or a loss so buying something for example costs you money so you know in some level you could think of that as be, you're losing something money in order to gain it but at the same time it can be framed as saving money if it's less expensive than an alternative right right so, when, when in fact you know on a rational point of view the, the only way to save the money is to not spend it at all <laughs> that's what homo economicus would say <laughs> um yeah and i think you can see this kind of thing in advertisements you mentioned um insurance or or, or payday loans or another one and mm. um, these advertisement advertisements um almost exclusively use cartoon avatars um because they 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 ride on our um they ride on the overwhelming reaction which is itself a heuristic that humans have to seeing an animal that resembles a small child to this kind of um perfected um idea like a cartoon person or a cartoon animal or cartoon baby and it, it's something that you'll notice, um, especially I, I noticed it a lot on British television, which for some reason is full of payday loans um, and has been for many years, which doesn't imply me to believe that there's much of an economy in the United Kingdom outside ever of payday loans. Ever since the Tories got <laughs> Yeah, ever since they got in, in the 90s. Um, but they're all, you know, they're, there's the Churchill dog and there's the this kind of cartoon character and they're jumping around and it's all bright colours and it's all childlike and it's, it is... It, it is, makes you feel good inside. makes you feel warm and good as you get that... 250,000% loan or whatever it is and <laughs> destroy your future. Gambling too often relies on and classically in smoking you had the 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 um the Joe Camel cartoon avatar and people complained that it was aimed at children but but that's not the real problem maybe it was too but it's also the totally aimed at children. <laughs> yeah, we should aim more things at but it, it it aims at the child inside of us. It aims at the heuristic that says this is a harmless fuzzy thing this is not a you don't you don't see gambling advertised by a, a snake for example you know or you know a, a venomous uh, worrisome person with a, with a with a suspicious grin you know it's, it's always a soft gentle thing that circumnavigates your, your rationality by making you feel comforted mm. there's a wonder somebody made this great joke where whereby they kind of said um you know c- casinos have this incredible sense of prestige and wealth you know like they have kind of like so a lot well 
you know, big time casinos say in Las Vegas or whatever, you know, that you're going in and you see all this gold and statues, you know, and, uh, you know, you, you, you should be thinking, you know, these people have an awful lot of money that run the casino. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, they've made a lot of money off the people coming in here. But instead, you think, money, money, money. <laughs> I'm going to get some. <laughs> you know, it's a, and the, the, the Catholic Church is, is another great example of that. You go to the Vatican and you should be thinking. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, people go to the Vatican and they think, wow, the majesty and glory of God. They don't think my goodness these fuckers have made good on the backs of the belief of millions of people through through the centuries billions billions yes <laughs> millions and billions millions and billions and billions of catholics <laughs> um so what can you do about it what can you do we, we all know that we're irrational we've, we've talked about some of the ways in which are irrational and you can you can go online and you can read ad nauseum as Andrew mentioned quite literally hundreds of these kinds of um, cognitive biases and heuristics have been discovered um, and the add, add to that all of the classical fallacies that the Greeks identified um, yeah. and taught uh, and reading about those is of course worthwhile and to an extent can at least inform you even though we tend to still make the same uh, problematic kinds of reasoning even when we're aware of it but what can you do so people have tried to develop a few sets of well many different kinds of sets of strategies for uh, reducing the degree to which our decisions are distorted um, by these innate problem solving um, mechanisms yeah and I, I mean like um yeah, I mean, there's huge incentives to do this as well. You know, I mean, you think of the kind of cost. I mean, you mentioned, you know, maybe getting ripped off by a company and so on. But I mean, you know, we have to make decisions in various kind of occupational, you know, in medicine, for example, you know, there, there could be huge, you know, uh, doctors have to make decisions, you know, under constrained, great constraints in terms of they have limited information. They can see some symptoms sort of might be, it might be ambiguous what, what exactly is wrong with the person. They have limited time, you know, people work in the HSE, you know, have only so much time to see each patient and so on. So, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there, the stakes are, are quite high, if you like, in terms of uh, trying to find kind of remediative uh, practices. And that's, so. I mean, you mentioned the health service. One of the best arguments against the way that we run health services here and in the UK, the, this idea of doctors almost being in boot camp when they're training, that they're working 40, 50, 60 hours at a shift, double shifts and so on. Or it, the, the guy from, uh, Orly Ermey from, uh, what was the Kubrick film, Metal, or full metal jacket like screaming at them and yeah, <laughs> yeah that, like. these are all things which are I mean it might it actually makes sense in the, in a boot camp setting because what they're trying to do effectively is to kill the individual at least train the person to be able to diminish their selfhood so that they'll be more, more likely to obey and kill and so on but for a medical professional it's the worst possible thing you can do because you're decreasing you're increasing the visceral factors they're tired they're exhausted they're confused um, they're moving all the time and you're you're massively diminishing their ability to retain information um, and to to make uh, to, to reducing their access to working memory um, you're making it much more likely objectively that they will make mistakes and the mistakes will kill people and that is the that is overwhelming the, the reason why we should never run a health service like that and not every country does and New Zealand is, is one that's um, prototypically much better at mm. dim- limiting the amount of errors doctors work and so on but it's it's scandalous and unscientific the way we run our health service and it's actually enforced by doctors who themselves went through that ran the bulwark of this yeah, and forced kind of their a, fellows to do the same there can be a certain yeah macho kind of thing for want of a better word yeah yeah and it's 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 terrifying that we're subject to the the mistakes that they make as a result of that it's disgraceful mm. but uh, you know psychologists should have more of a role in setting political policies we, we unfortunately don't have any so. <laughs> although having having said that with the the, the behavioural economics like the the um there was uh, Richard Thaler, who who was another person in behavioral economics who got the, the Nobel Prize in, in economics. Did have uh, 
he did set up some kind of behavioral economics unit with the um it, under the Oblamo <laughs> who's the no the Barack Obama uh, government like so and they did uh, they did they were talking about a behavioral economics unit in the UK you know it, it had it, it was subject to some um there were a few scandals around, <laughs> around yeah, it as this, well this this stuff is deeply problematic because this is kind of using psychology in exactly the wrong way rather than um as we we just mentioned understanding human limits um, let's say human factors is another area people tend to drive badly under certain circumstances when they're tired is the most obvious one but there's many other circumstances and using those limits to design a safer car or better road management or whatever it is what what people like um, Thaler or Cal Sunstein have done is to say well um, people don't like the decisions that governments are making how can we manipulate the ways in which those decisions are being communicated in order to get them to object less in order to, and there's a lot of stuff about risk management. So governments making, uh, for example, building a nuclear power station. How do we present that information so as to decrease the opposition to it? Um, how do we, how do we shape or nudge, as as Thaler would say, the 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 behaviour of large groups of people so that they eat better and so on? But it's deeply anti-democratic and incredibly propagandistic, and and really a a profound misuse of psychology on the level of. The, the things that we discussed in the last episode of torture because you know one person torturing 10 people is a terrible thing but but one person affecting hundreds of thousands of people so as to take away their freedom is arguably a worse wrong and i, I think that's a very pernicious area of psychology so yeah while i would argue for the yeah, sorry, so just just that just that as i say while i would argue for the inclusion of psychology in politics i think that's not the way to do it you know that's dangerous and authoritarian yeah, Nudge. I mean, Nudge was originally called uh, libertarian paternalism. It was called. It was. It was rejected by uh, several uh, publishers. I think under that title until <laughs> one, one kind of publisher kind of accepted it and said, "Look, you need to change the name to something more, more catchy." Libertarian. What a terrifying idea! That the two most dangerous political ideologies of all time combined. <laughs> so I think yeah, a lot of the stuff, perhaps the at the less. Uh, pernicious end you'd have stuff like you know opt-in versus opt-out whether you present something as mm-hmm. opt-in versus opt-out so the person does still have uh, a choice as such but like people are uh, if you opt people in and they have to make a small effort even if it's just tip ticking a box say for things like organ donation i'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that because yeah. You know, organ donation is this kind of lovely. Oh yes, that's that's a really yeah. It's probably good that people are automatically opted in. But where do we see most of this opt in rather than sorry, giving person the option to explicitly opt out rather than opt in? We see it in what computer scientists call dark patterns. It's also been called asshole interfaces, um, <laughs> and that's where you try to join a website, or more more often you try to leave. If you've ever tried to delete your Facebook, or say delete your Amazon profile, or contact a real person on Amazon, uh, you'll find that you are repeatedly um, misdirected to the wrong page you're told are you sure you want to delete it oh why instead of deleting it why don't you do this here are the six benefits if you don't delete it here's a pop-up to distract you here's another page and they build they build these dark patterns in order based on the perniciousness of the website whether to you know could on the extreme end it could be to give you a virus uh, on the more mild end it's just to prevent you from leaving a service or get you to pay for a more expensive service and things like mm. anchoring are, are used where they'll show you here's a ridiculously expensive option here's the option we want you and here's a, a terrible option and you're going to you're going to judge the value of the option based on the absurd oh i'm not going to pay 50 euro a month but 10 euro a month what, what a great deal despite the fact <laughs> yeah. that maybe maybe some other you just wanted to leave the service altogether <laughs> you just wanted to leave it altogether and th- that stuff is um so this is where we see 
behavioural economics and thinking, judgment and decision making is actually very often used and the res- this research is used and it's used again in, in the worst and most pernicious way in order to, to make you a, a, a more drained consumer mm. to better, rather than enable you, rather than to provide you... Um, Jaron Lanier writes brilliantly about this. If, if, if you're interested in the pernicious uses of technology to deprive people of liberty, Jaron Lanier's books are absolutely brilliant. He was a viewer visionary in the 1990s, and now he I've writes. Heard of him. He, he's amazing. He, he writes about the, the 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 major companies in Silicon Valley and how they act, um, how how what they're calling AI um, is actually just the expertise of lots of people who are working all of the time for free. Mm. Uh, being monetized without them being compensated it's really really brilliant stuff. so like if google asks you to prove you're not a robot by clicking on you know which uh, which of these squares contains sarah connor's and which from the terminator <laughs> and which don't uh, connor. the previous discussion might make people feel that they're helpless cogs in the, the zuckerberg machine <laughs> but uh, i think a good example actually you you mentioned kind of reference i think you were want to talk about reference class forecasting i think a really nice example of where you can use this is another heuristic i, I meant to talk about which is the planning fallacy and this is uh, this is like a heuristic Uh, a bias I suppose you'd call it more than anything where people have a tendency to think that projects will take shorter to complete than they will Mm -hmm. so if you think something if something if you think something's going to take one week it's probably actually going to take two (laughs) weeks and there might be something adaptive to it because you know this kind of optimism this excessive optimism might be the thing that motivates you to do things in the first place this is so this is I mean this is my biggest problem in life is that I always think <laughs> oh sure geez, I'll do a, a podcast with Andrew it'll take what an hour or two uh, a month <laughs> and you know or whatever it is uh, you know it always takes longer and as you yeah. said it can be maybe if we realised how long things took um, mm. we would just sit sort of exhausted at the prospect of ever doing something new again so yeah. it's much so better it's, to be optimistic yeah so it's kind of um, and, it, and it can be quite resistant so I mean oftentimes people kind of if, if someone says to you you know oh well remember the last time you did a podcast it actually ended up taking about you know a year or something people can be kind of resistant to that and say oh yes well this they can focus on what's going to be different this time (laughs) rather than so what what is reference last forecasting that's specifically something that Kahneman Tversky developed as a way of avoiding this kind of mistake yeah so it's uh, it's um, say if you're working with a particular problem or say a particular project you want to get done so you identify say a a previous similar problem say a, a similar kind of podcast you were doing and then you try and compare the two and this time you 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 kind of use the anchoring heuristic if you like in a positive way so you you say if the last podcast took you a year instead of saying oh this is going to take two months because everything's going to be great <laughs> this time you say okay you start with that as your anchor and say right if it takes you know a year to do 10 episodes i'm going to assume it's going to take another year to do another <laughs> 10 episodes and then you can adjust it but you know it's um you know you have to kind of come up with a more rational rationale for for why it's going to be shorter and then it just kind of appropriately based on that in so, so many words yeah. that's kind of the idea and that's great i think that 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 kind of approach to hu- your heuristics not trying to fight them but trying to trying to choose them trying to go well this is um, this is going to be a more useful heuristic so i'm going to try and prod that one mm-hmm. you know i'm going to um paint a uh, there's, there's a there's a thing that's been found with exercise i'm not sure exactly which heuristic this would tie into but where where there's a famous experiment done where they show people a picture of a photoshop picture of a thinner version of themselves that they're more liable to lose weight and continue exercising so you know taping a taping a picture of your thin self to the fridge <laughs> is probably a more effective thing to do you're you're of course you're inducing a heuristic your comparison of yourself then and now and and, and giving yourself dysphoria by doing that but it's probably more effective than just you know um 
saying, oh, I'll have the willpower to fight off the goodies and I'll just buy them for the special occasion. You know, <laughs> Maybe you should print out your shopping list on a picture of yourself, your thin self. I'm thinking for myself. I'm not trying to fat shame anyone other than me. <laughs> cool, cool. So there have been there have been other uh, ones. Another one that's quite interesting, uh, another method of, of trying to fight your, your, your fallacies and your heuristics is this thing, um, generalized bias training. Um, so this is more coming, I think, come from computer science um, and maybe man- business management. So in 2015, they did this uh, set of experiments where they trained people using interactive games. So they would put, give them a game where the heuristic would become activated and they would make a mistake and then they would give them the, the same task again. So again and again, they'd be facing presumably these little interactive scenarios or something like this. And they'd be making the mistake and they'd be going, oh, you could have done this. And what they found was, surprisingly enough, when they um, had direct and immediate feedback, which gave people a better way of solving the problem, over time, um, they developed skill sets, which were kind of becoming very aware of the kind of mistakes they were making. And that was actually generally applicable. And it meant that they were able then to um, to realize um, in future situations. So, so several months later, they made less mistakes, at least at least in the computer-based tests. Now, mm. I don't know if it generalized to their lives, but that's yeah. an interesting approach going forward. Yeah, so I think yeah, having an awareness of, of these kind of biases and, and, and as you were saying, maybe being aware of those kind of fallacies you know, in argumentation is very constructive and can help people. But um, I suppose... I suppose you have to be aware that you do have to apply that knowledge once you have it. Again, it can be constrained by, you know, if you're under kind of a lot of pressure, again, it comes back to this point, if you're very fatigued or under a lot of stress, you might still be engaging in those prejudices again, like if you've, yeah. uh, so with it, with computer tasks, it's probably good and that you can kind of, you probably have a certain amount of space allotted to it or a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it's a great, it's certainly a great first step, like to, to, to have some, that kind of, knowledge of what your biases are where your weak points are and and i think the great takeaway from from all of this is that um you know what what an awareness is useful and that that should that perhaps we should be less judgmental of our own mistakes you know as human beings we're inclined to repeat the same patterns you know and you can look at that from a psychodynamic perspective or something like that but here's a very cognitive way of thinking about it some of the mistakes that we're making are just our vulnerability to our own specific set of heuristics you know maybe you're a person that tends to be more tired or maybe you're a person that tends to be more uh, hungry or you have a chronic illness or pain and something like this or trauma and any one of those things can can make you more vulnerable to certain kinds of heuristics and knowing that can 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 let inform you that you know if you can deal with the the thing that's the visceral factor that's making you more unreasonable you'll have more space to give your rational self um, a chance and even things like diarising you know writing out li- the classic thing is the you know um, the list of uh, should I do a thing here are the reasons why I should and here are the reasons why I shouldn't now there's some research that has shown that that specific approach is, is not great but anything that makes you think more rationally spreads a decision out over time forces you out of the situation where you're tense and irrational will help you make better and more reasonable decisions and um, yeah so th- there's been a whole whole bunch of these as we said um approaches um, and they all tend to do that they all tend to either train the person to be aware of the factors that affect them or to teach them specifically these are the heuristic mistakes that people make so if you're interested you should check out online there's some great wikipedia entry for heuristics and biases which lists a ton of them and you can find lists of fallacies online as well and i would really uh, suggest reading through them i think it's really useful to understand just be aware wikipedia can change <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, add to the entry, change, add your own heuristics. <laughs> your truth is as valid as any other. 
<laughs> the non-futuristic. Well, thank you so much for listening. Um, I've been Gareth Stack, and and I've been Andrew Allen. And uh, Andrew, is your uh, you did a talk recently at the Bright Club? Is it going to be uh, online anywhere? Or I think it should be going up up on YouTube. Yeah, so if you, you check out, it, it isn't up yet. But if uh, I can update you at the next uh, next uh, <laughs> when, podcast when we next speak on the Bri- yeah. presumably it's Bright Club Dublin YouTube page or something similar. Bright Club Dublin, yeah. Andrew, yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, look out for that. And I'll be talking about uh, memory, episodic memory and autobiographical memory. Which is, of course, your, um, if I remember correctly, your area of research right now. That's my current area of research, yeah. And I'm doing it in a kind of a comedic sort of fashion as well. So You can enjoy the comedy stylings of Andrew P. Allen. Um, and yeah, please do get in touch if you have any thoughts or ideas about this episode. I know the sound quality varied a lot. There was a lot of planes and helicopters. And of course, we were literally outside you know, it's, a, it's one of the rare sunny days we get in Ireland, so we took the risk. And if it was too annoying, let us know and we'll never do it again. On the other hand, if you enjoyed our more relaxed demeanour, <laughs> uh, send us biscuits uh, or whatever. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in.